Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver. And I'm co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talese, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Shannon M. Massette. Professor of Philosophy at Utah Valley University. Her book, Entropic Philosophy, Chaos, Breakdown, and Creation, is just out from Roman and Littlefield. Everything is breaking down. Chaos is increasing. Entropy is not just a metaphor, although it is also that. In Entropic Philosophy, Masset argues that while denial and nihilism are common and world-shaping responses to entropy, they are not our only options. By revaluing order and stability, chaos and decay, we can turn to entropy with care and see the possibilities for creation and destruction. Masset makes these arguments attentive to suffering, loss, and oppression, offering a philosophy of thriving, even as the whole universe inexorably moves towards heat death. Shannon Masset, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you, Sarah. I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, well, it's great to have you, and I'm so excited about your book. So will you tell us how you got to this book? What's your background as a philosopher, and how did you come to start thinking about entropy? It was a very uh, strange journey. I certainly never set out to write a book on a theme like this. Um, I suppose it started when I moved to Utah, uh, when I took the job at Utah Valley University, and I heard about the land art of Robert Smithson, the spiral jetty that's in the Great Salt Lake and I went out to check it out back in the days before the road was paved and you had to go on a bumpy road and tons of dust out in sort of the middle of nowhere, Utah. And there is this gorgeous work of art that is so unusual because it's just 
completely isolated and it's falling apart before your eyes and the work itself is entropic. And I didn't realize that at the time, but then I just went and started reading some of Robert Smithson's um, articles and essays because he was quite a prolific writer. And it turns out that that was one of his goals was to make works of art that actually performed entropy so that what was moving or beautiful about the work was that they fell apart. And so that just kind of planted planted a seed that eventually just led me to start thinking about entropy in a much broader, wider sense. Yeah, um, it makes a lot of sense for how the book progresses that this began with an aesthetic experience for you. And I will get into that. Um, Yeah, that yeah. So so your book really begins by making clear that entropy shapes our lives because it shapes the universe, well, everything. Um, and that a lot of a lot goes into denying the second law of thermodynamics. Um, and that this you you make this point that denying entropy is common and devastating. Um and this did not ring a bell from my physics class, where I'm sure I learned about this. So um, will you just explain entropy, it's why we deny it, um, and why maybe we just never learn about it in the way that you're presenting it in this book? I mean, yeah, there's there's so many points of access into into that question, because... I mean, on the one hand, you mentioned taking a physics class. And another thing that sort of sparked my interest in this is that I've always been really interested in theoretical physics. I figured that the that the pre-Socratic philosophers would just be modern day um, uh, theoretical physicists. And so I've always been really sort of enraptured by these contemporary popular uh, thinkers and books that talk about themes like entropy and, and the laws of the universe and, and star formations and things like that. And I came across far too many examples of contemporary physicists slamming philosophy and I thought that was so strange because I thought we would sort of work in tandem, but there were a number of really prominent thinkers like my hero, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who basically said things like, we've moved past philosophy, philosophy is outdated, and now if you want to know the answers to the truth of the universe, you have to turn to physics. And so that's another reason why I got fascinated by this concept, because I think physics does have a lot to teach philosophers, even philosophers like myself, who are not philosophers of science, but who are just simply interested in these kinds of scientific questions. So, you know, I think entropy just as a general concept has such far wide reaching applications and it kind of appears and pops up in all of these different uh, disciplines and spaces. And I think that, that that really shows, first of all, the kind of provocative aspect of this second law of thermodynamics that seems to seep into all of these different components of our lives. And so, you know, as you said, it shapes our lives and it shapes the universe. And it's and it's one of those those kinds of phenomena that we really feel on a visceral existential level. And so, right, so it's very common because we do kind of have this sense that things constantly fall apart without 
the influx of energy and that to keep things stable, to keep systems going, it requires upkeep and it requires, like I say, energy being put into the system because systems are not self-sustaining indefinitely. And, and so, right. So one of the questions of the book is, okay, let's just grant that. Let's just let's accept the fact that entropy as as you know in all the different ways that science talks about it and then all the other ways that other disciplines talk about it is is something that's real and that you know there is a kind of a measurement of what is lost in energy exchanges that we can calculate that we can feel that in isolated systems entropy always increases that there is a sense that time is always moving forward and let's grant that and then Let's explore whether or not it it has to be a, the kind of force of devastation that it so often becomes. And what I mean by saying it by saying that is we have a sort of tendency in a lot of the ways that I looked at in the book to actually accelerate entropics, to take what is inevitable that systems break down, and in, in fact, to actually produce greater devastation than is necessary. And that, that, that comes by kind of like the heedless ways that we engage in commerce and thought. And then it also comes in the ways that we just completely pretend like that's not happening, that we have these sort of ideas and beliefs in, in, in eternal uh, perpetuity, like we can just keep things going, societies, systems, economic systems, bodies, forever without the inevitable breakdown. And so that's sort of one of the the things that I think is interesting. It's a law, it's a scientific law, but there's no reason why our practices, our social and philosophical practices have to either ignore it or accelerate it. Yeah. Um, and so, so part of what you show and, and you use literature to show this is that, or to talk about this, but is that entropy as a concept comes along relatively recently in the history of ideas. Um, and so how does it help us organize our understanding of the past, not just as a, as a scientific concept, but as a metaphor. And, and I found the Borges here really helpful for understanding why this rather late concept can help us understand pre-Socratics, for instance. Right, right. So there was a challenge that I faced in writing a book like that, like like I did, which is I didn't want to just sort of go rooting around to find something because I wanted to find it there. And so it's true. If if entropy as a law was you know, discovered or named in the mid 19th century. And then I'm writing a book that sort of looks at various ideas that go back 2,500 years and move forward from there, right? I didn't want to, I didn't want to shoehorn this concept onto something just because I wanted to find it. So that was sort of a delicate balancing act that I had to, that I had to perform so that I actually allowed things to show up without making them appear. So I, I really found this. So there were sort of two, two ideas that, that helped me do this. And one was this notion of a root metaphor that Eric Zensi um, sort of built off of Stephen Pepper's ideas. And root metaphors are these metaphors that have a kind of world-explaining view. And it's, it's, it, they're sort of all-encompassing, and you're able to kind of um, explain 
uh, uh, different kind of phenomena in terms of this this enormous grounding root metaphor. So it's a, you know, he calls the, Zensi calls entropy a root metaphor searching for structural corroboration. And that's what you really see when you see it appearing and popping up in literature and sociology and psychoanalysis, and it's coming up all of these different places. Um, and so, you know, I said, okay, well, if, if, if I sort of grant that entropy has this far-reaching metaphorical hold on our imaginations in you know much of the contemporary landscape then i wanted to sort of see again can i go back and and see whatever it is that entropy as a metaphor is naming in previous forms of thinking and that's where this borges idea this borgesian idea that you mentioned really helped me because, um, right, Borges has this beautiful, like, one-page essay where called Kafka and his Precursors, where he talks about Kafka. And he says, you know, had Kafka never written a word, we would actually never be able to, to name what we all sort of refer to as the Kafka-esque, that kind of prevailing, alienating, bureaucratic uh, experience of the world. But he says, since Kafka wrote, we actually can retroactively apply this Kafka-esque lens to earlier writers so that we can actually see the Kafka-esque in figures like Zeno, you know, Zeno's paradoxes, because Kafka wrote. So it was this really interesting reading strategy that strategy that that Borges suggests that we can take a concept that is relatively late on the historical scene and use it as a kind of pair of binoculars to look backwards and forwards, of course, but really to look backwards and to see that there are these um, these phenomena that different artists and writers and philosophers and thinkers and scientists are talking about, like I talk about in the book, things like decay and death and slackening and dissolution and disorder and chaos. And once we have something like the, the, the discovery of the second law of thermodynamics, we can use that as a pair of binoculars to look backwards and see, oh, even though they didn't conceive of this as a scientific law in the 19th century sense, it's still a cluster of concepts and phenomena that they're trying to talk about, that they're trying to name, that they're trying to describe, perhaps master, perhaps avoid, whatever it is. And so that really kind of opened up my ability to think about entropy or what I call entropics and others call it entropics as well, it, you know, in this kind of historical way so that I didn't feel like I was forcing it. Instead, I felt like I was able to actually bring all of these, these thinkers into a kind of common language. Yeah. It became a mode of, of historical meaning making. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I like the, the metaphor of the binoculars. Um, as a way of looking. And, and so you take in two different chapters, you take on these periods in, in the history of philosophy using, using the entropy binoculars and it's first the Greeks and then the Germans. Um, and so how, how did these analyses, how did looking back at two different, um, you know, like quite historically um, separated these periods help you develop um, your understanding of entropy? 
Yeah, it's a it's a good question because this is the kind of project that could easily mushroom into studying anybody that 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 kind of catches your fancy. And I was actually sincerely worried about how heavily Western the the study was. I mean, to go from the Greeks to the Germans, holy smokes, right? That like that hasn't been done before. (laughs) (laughs) So I was actually really worried about that. Um, But then I I realized that what it what it was that I was discovering in the thinkers, and it was very much a selection, right? I couldn't talk about everybody, and I couldn't even talk about every but everything that they wrote that I wanted to. But I realized that they actually showed me that concern that you began our conversation with, namely that there seemed to be a kind of preoccupation with both understanding phenomena of chaos, disorder, uh, breakdown and death, but also a kind of desire to overcome it, to solve it, to fix it. And that's really what what stood out to me in these thinkers. And and I won't I won't talk about all of them, but I will talk about a couple of them and, and try to explain what I mean. So, for example, um, I, I spend some time with Plato, and you see, right, Plato is 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 concerned with um, you know the kind of uh, uh, dis- disparity between the ideal and the real. Not to oversimplify it, but we're just going to run with that. And so in something like the Republic, even, you know, however you might read the building of the Republic, there is a sense that it's it's a it's a society trying to be modeled off of the good, the perfection of the good. And you get as high up as you can go. And then in book eight, uh, the Republic starts to crumble. There's problems with the, with the, with the birds that there's problems with the fact that nature intermixes with all things human. And then you start to have the devolution of the society. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of an expression of here in this material world, no matter how hard we try to build something perfect, nature and materiality, which breaks down and decays, will inevitably thwart us in our best attempts. So then you look at the more cosmological pieces. And so I look at the Timaeus and the Statesman, and there, even though they tell different stories about the creation and maintenance of the universe, there's a common theme, which is that both of these dialogues have a divine intervention. There is a creator God in the Timaeus that has to take the scattered materiality of nature and form it into this this almost nearly perfect organism. And in the statesman, you have various gods stepping into to, or various ages of gods and, and the gods stepping in to, to right the ship when things start to go almost completely off the off the rails. I think that's a mixed metaphor, but we're just going to run with it. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate right? it. Yeah. When the train yeah. goes off the rails, we'll just go there. And this divine presence right, steps in and, and fixes it and brings it, brings everything that's falling into a kind of chaos back into a kind of order. And so I was really moved by this kind of necessary divine presence that that fixes what the errant materiality of nature is always threatening to undo. 
And so that really shows, I think, the kind of extremes that are necessary to go to in the face of what we can just perceive in the natural world, is, which is that things fall apart and things get sick and things die. And so when you look at the cosmological level, sure, Plato's Republic might fall apart, but in the universe, divinity will be there to be sure that the universe itself will, will be maintained in perpetuity. And I thought, wow, that's that's really um, insightful for this kind of philosophical analysis that I'm trying to do, because it shows kind of the acknowledgement of these these entropic phenomenon that I'm concerned with and also a denial of them, because in on the cosmological level, it's okay. There's a God there to save us. And so when I'm looking at the Germans, I'm looking at Kant, Schelling, and Hegel, I see the same kind of desire. I mean, of course, a lot of things have changed. But in Hegel, which is, is, is the focus, the, the really the main focus of that chapter, you have, I think, a repetition of this sense that you need God or spirit or something divine to save us from material degeneration. So, and I think it's really, I mean, Hegel's philosophy of nature, which I, which I really like to talk about in this, shows this kind of extreme move like we see in Plato, which is nature is really the externalization of God or spirit, right? It's a very theological kind of reading that I have of what he's doing there, but that's because I think that's what he's doing there. And, and this natural world, which is just externality, it, it sort of lacks the inner cohesion of the concept or the subject. And it's kind of everything exists in, in a kind of disparate way. And so that he, he, you know, he, he charts all of these different things like space and time and matter and gravity. But all of this is just a kind of uh, you know, long path to get to his end goal, which is to say, nature is infected with finitude, that the material world is incapable of being self-sufficient. It is incapable of achieving true kind of subjectivity. And so what does nature have to do? It has to sacrifice itself for a kind of spiritual redemption. So what is finite what gets sick and diseased, what decays and falls apart, even the highest manifestation that he thinks exists, which is the animal in nature, all of these things get sick and die. So in order for there to be a kind of rescuing, a kind of saving of, of, of existence from this inborn seed of death, which is what he calls it, there has to be the sacrificial move of nature so that it can be idealized and spiritualized, which is, again, another instance of the way in which philosophers in this, in this sort of early tradition that I'm tracing out acknowledge the reality of these entropic phenomena and then try to fix it, try to make it so that it's not threatening, that even though, yes, individual finite things may die on the universal, divine, spiritual level, there's always going to be an, you know, there's going to be a kind of eternal salvation. And that that's, I mean, it's very pretty. And I, I, right, I like, I like studying it, but I think it's, it's, it's an incredibly dangerous line of thinking because it, 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 it really underscores that denial of 
entropics, that denial of entropy that only exacerbates the the problems of of entropy and entropic phenomena. Well, and you can just really see the setup for a critique of capitalism coming in that description of it. You know? <laughs> right, like, right, exactly. Uh, yeah, um, the self sacrifice. Um, yeah. Um, so okay, yeah. So so this is the denial we've been talking. The theme's really been um, centered on denial, and now your book moves to talk about. Um, fatalism as a response to entropy. And there are two thinkers who really help you think through fatalism, I think. It's Freud and Levi-Strauss. Um, and so and so, what is, how is fatalism, how does it work as a response yeah. to entropy? Well, so this is probably the most depressing chapter of the book. Indeed. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was it, the old it, age it, chapter. I'll 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 just put in a vote for that too. But, but that yeah. might actually also be the most depressing chapter. Yeah, they really they really work well together. Um, but so Freud and Levi Strauss were both working, um, you know, post uh, discovery of the entropy law, post discovery of the laws of thermodynamics, and so they're actually borrowing from a lot of the ideas that that were percolating. I mean, you know, Marx and Engels did as well. So there's a sort of sense that they are directly engaging uh, the entropy law and entropic thinking. And so I think that's also a really helpful um, framework to read what they're doing and also to kind of explain what I think is some of the more pessimistic elements of their thinking. Um, and so, right, I think this is this is sort of where I start to see, okay, well, now if we've talked about these earlier forms of denial and and divine rescuing, what happens when there is no God to save us? Right. When there's when there when when both Levi Strauss and and Freud are not looking for some kind of divine intervention, but are in fact acknowledging that humans have to live with the consequences of the 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 actions that they have brought into the world and what what exactly that means i mean right you've got freud who's who's writing at the end of world war 1 and and before world war 2 and seeing the devastation that human societies can 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 wreak on each other and then you have levi strauss who's doing a lot of field work in brazil and is horrified by seeing what actually happens with uh, colonialism and capitalism and the absolute extreme devastation that these practices bring into the world with indigenous cultures and these you know myriad flora and fauna that are being completely destroyed by this expansionism so I think I think it show both of their writings show the allure of entropy as a framework for thinking through these issues. And that's what I said sort of at the beginning that it's incredible how far reaching this concept is and how many different disciplines actually engage it. Some are in the social sciences, some in the humanities, some obviously in the sciences and information science. So it really sort of shows just how fecund the the ideas of entropic thinking really are for a variety of different approaches to the world's problems. So I think that's one of the interesting things about it that's a little less depressing. But I think that, you know, you it really it really forces us to to kind of come face to face with, in Freud's case, the kind of psychic desire for harm 
that that often goes unacknowledged and undiagnosed and how that can manifest. You know, he'll talk about the death drive and, you know, a lot of the the kinds of, of problems that we experience, the devastation that we can see human culture engaging in uh, can be for him attributed to this kind of entropic death drive, this retroactive desire for to, to be inorganic, for quiescence. And that's that aspect of entropy, which is the movement towards homogenization, right? The big freeze is what the physics would call it, where there is no more change. The matter stays the same in the universe, but there's no more change. And Freud says we have a deep psychic desire for that. Then we, you know, it's largely unacknowledged and unknown, but the death drive is really this desire to return to the kind of homogeneity and quiescence of undifferentiated matter. And it's important to, to understand that. And that's why Freud wants us to think about it, because maybe if we at least acknowledge it, maybe we'll be less devastating. Maybe we'll be less violent, because at least we can analyze it and, and, and deal with it on an individual and, and cultural level. And Levi Strauss, I mean, he basically ends Tris Tropique, this beautiful analysis of so many of his experiences with these indigenous cultures and his, his field notes and his kind of larger philosophical thoughts by saying uh, anthropology should would be better called anthropology. And by that, he means to say that what he realized in going to these cultures that he had originally thought were somewhat untainted by Western expansion and colonialism were actually not living, thriving cultures, but already cultures in decline because they had already been infected by this vast leveling machine of Western capitalism and colonialism, which raises difference, which destroys the kind of diversity that it finds in order to remake it in its own kind of monstrous image. And so instead of going to study different cultures, he realized he was studying dying cultures and they were dying because of these leveling entropic effects of the destruction that was being brought by these, these invading, these invading powers. And so I think both of these thinkers do what the earlier thinkers were not really thinking about, weren't really trying to bring to light, which is to to shine this kind of spotlight on the ways in which right these earlier thinkers that I talked about, the Greeks and the Germans, they're trying to kind of fix or solve or stop entropy through divine intervention. And figures like Freud and Levi-Strauss are saying that movement actually is the accelerationist movement, because then we don't see that instead of preserving difference and diversity, we're actually part of these cultures that participate in the accelerating loss of those things. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so you can see why that was one of the most... <laughs> So it's, it's, it's yep <laughs> yeah yep, i mean exactly i mean we'll get there because you have you have a, a way of negotiating this but we have we have some other hard topics to cover first but we all there's for those of you listening <laughs> there's something something good is coming it's not denial and it's not fatalism um but we're not there yet we're not there yet because we got to talk about old age under capitalism um and this, I really felt this chapter, this was really important. So how does the phenomenon of old age under capitalism expose the relationship between the denial of entropy and its acceleration? Um, yeah. And I just, it, this felt just like every day I read it, it felt like a little bit more pressing as an analysis in our time. So. Right. I, so this is, this is kind of where I found that what I was doing was actually useful as a diagnostic tool to try to understand some of the things that we are seeing all around us and don't really know how to talk about them in all of the ways that they need to be talked about. So uh, I, I have worked on Beauvoir's Laviesse Old Age, um, her work Old Age for a number of years. And so I've, I've always been really fascinated by the kind of framing of the elderly as as even more othered, she would argue even more othered than the women that she talked about in the second sex. So I've always really been sort of interested in talking about um, to the treatment of the elderly, uh, not just in the way that Beauvoir talked about them, but in contemporary American society. And uh, a few years ago, I actually read an article by Jessica Bruder um, in Harper's, and she's the author who wrote Nomadland. Uh, which was made into a movie pretty recently. And, um, and this article really, really captured what it is that I was trying to think through. And the article was talking about how the age of retirement is now becoming less available to more and more people. And so that only the very privileged are actually materially safe enough to be able to retire. And that more and more people and the majority of people have to work well past their, what we would consider to be a comfortable and humane retirement age. And so she sort of focuses on this kind of transient labor forces of, of the elderly, uh, people who are, you know, the greeters at, at Costco or the, or the, you know, the food handlers there, or people who migrate around, uh, you know, to Amazon when there's more seasonal work or people who will go to uh, beet farms and, and, you know, uh, harvest the beets, right? So real transient mobile work workforce who is made up um, largely of people that might otherwise be better served if they could just retire from hard labor. And so what I was really fascinated about was to see how this was, you know, a real um, pointed illustration of that accelerationist attitude that bodies break down. 
that this is something that is inevitable. Given enough time, all bodies age, all bodies break down, that the, the, you know, the, the, entro- the entropy law is a very visceral, real thing for aging bodies. And that what advanced capitalism, especially in the United States, and that's what I focused on, has managed to do is in the extreme denial of the breakdown of the body has actually worked to make it work even more. To have it to have it produce as longer than it should, harder than work harder than it should, with the goal of getting as much capital, and also with the goal of of forcing these bodies then to spend their money to try to take care of themselves with dwindling resources. So they're both being forced to work longer, and they're being forced to consume products uh, that 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 keep them going so that they can work longer, and that that's pre- that's precisely the kind of sickness baked into advanced capitalist society that sees its aging labor force as nothing but fodder for more labor and more consumption, rather than as sites needing care and respect and reverence because even if they haven't earned it, it's just something that would be the morally you know, right thing to do. Yeah, and it just this analysis seemed so um, important given the um, mass exposure to deaths of our elders in yeah. the pandemic, and yes. the way the way this was often put in sort of like an economic argument, right? Like that um, that these these people are a necessary sacrifice for the economic well being of younger people, or something like this. And it at your analysis really, I think, gives us a way of reading that as a denial of entropy um, at the same time that it's being accelerated. And I would also say that I think that this is, again, you know, you have to make strategic choices when you, when you write a book, because otherwise it's going to be 12,000 pages long. But I, I really would like to see, if not me, other people sort of look at this kind of this, this sort of entropic denial and acceleration in various forms of kind of, of marginalized communities, you know, the way in which and there are all sorts of communities that are seen as both disposable and also economically viable for, for production and consumption. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, well, so then the project then moves to consider non-human systems and, and what entropy means for non-human systems. And it, it seemed to me that it was really important that the old age chapter came before this chapter, that it was a, there's an important movement in the book from this analysis of old age under capitalism into this consideration of systems connected to humans, systems bigger than humans, systems impacted by humans. Um, is that read right? Is that Im- yeah. an important progression? Absolutely. Okay. So do you mind... Yeah, like kind of um, spelling that out for us. Yeah, sure. So after I do the sort of, you know, sad analysis of the what we have inherited from this line of, of entropic thinking, I, you know, and I, and I just mentioned that with the, with the old age chapter, you see how capitalism forces these dwindling bodies to produce and consume. But another thing that that chapter highlights is this kind of emphasis that we see in neoliberal thought 
which is on individual responsibility for one's well-being. So I'm sorry that you didn't save enough for your retirement. Too bad. You should have been more responsible. This was on you. This is the kind of responsabilization ethos that we really push on to people in, in places like the United States. And so... If you, if you focus on individuality and individual responsibility, then you completely miss, as, as we know, the, the structural problems that are far more important than whether or not somebody did an individual choice to save money or to do a different job than they did. And so this chapter on materiality and waste, I, I wanted it to kind of be a, a sort of move away from the focus on the individual as its own isolated system trying to maintain itself with all these forces that seek to break it down, and instead to borrow from other thinkers um, like Jane Bennett, like Karen Ball, who who think in, in terms of these sort of larger material systems that overlap with each other, that borrow from each other, that mostly are not human, but still exhibit some kind of if not agency, at least some some sort of movement that that appears like it's kind of an agency, so that we think of systems as much larger than, say, my body, my individual body, or my individual home, or my individual family, or what have you, which is how we do tend to think because we've been very programmed to think in those terms, and instead to 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 look at um, you know these kinds of collectivities that borrow from each other, that feed off of the waste of each other, that, you know, systems whose waste actually destroys other systems or builds them up. And just by doing that, allowing us to think outside of this sort of individuality that so infects all these other things that I've been talking about. And so I think that was kind of the step towards crawling out of the hole of pessimism <laughs> and nihilism. Mm-hmm. Because if you think of all these different systems, whether it's the systems, Barbara Ehrenreich talks about the systems in our body, or you know all these different colonies that have nothing to do with us and yet have everything to do with us. And then you think of these larger systems like power grids and governments and, and all the various things that compose a society, then suddenly you're able to understand entropy as the way that systems and collectivities borrow from each other, destroy each other, support each other. And then you can start to think of entropy in different terms than just this kind of decline into death and sadness. Yeah. And it really underscores, um, you know, like how extractivism works, right? This sort of denial that there's something's being taken to put energy into a system that otherwise is going to decline, right? Um, I saw this in Smithson's work with the mining, um, this wanting to acknowledge something's been taken here and we can turn it into something else, but not by denying what's happened here. Yeah, exactly, right? So that you start to see that any response to energy stewardship is going to have to be more sensitive to how the non-human interacts with the human, however we think of that, whether it's living non-human or inorganic non-human, that you stop seeing the human as somehow superior to the non-human or somehow able to defeat whatever it is that is destructive of the materiality of the non-human and instead start to see that really these are, these are various things that are all really intertwined and therefore should be thought of in that way. And then 
again, you would see something like energy extraction as not just superior humans taking the inorganic material for their superior needs, but actually a kind of systemic breakdown that ends up harming both the materiality of something like the mine and the materiality of the human that's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we're, we're already starting to talk about the way that not falling into denial or fatalism um, requires a shift to seeing how entropy is generative. Um, and you spend a lot of time in talking about aesthetic practices um, as this as this response that appreciates the generative nature of entropy. And, and you, for example, will do a reading of a short story to begin a chapter. Um, and the, the final chapter then theorizes what you've, I think, been practicing and modeling throughout the book. Um, so how did you come to see the generative possibilities of entropy um, and it sounds like a little bit in the core experience of going out to Spiral Jetty, there's something, there's a kernel there, but how did that become a, a, a mode of theorization for you? Well, so yeah, I, one of the things that, as, as you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about that, that I had to confront was how not to, to, to fall into despair. I mean, we've all just lived we're still living through the pandemic. We are living in a pretty scary age for anybody who's attuned to the world and the environment. And so writing about all of these things can, can really lead you to, to some, some dark places. And what ended up happening was when you write a book, as you know, you have people who help you and talk to you about it. And <laughs> thankfully, yes, thankfully. thankfully. Thank those people, yeah. <laughs> yes, so, so to everybody who actually talked to me about this, I was through these conversations with scholars and my partner, who's also an academic, that I started to see that there was this entire other way of looking at these phenomena. I mean, it, it brought me into the project. It was the artistic insight that brought me into the project. And so like Zarathustra, I had to go down before I could, before I could come back up. And then it was just sort of not only did I understand that on the level of physics, as well as the level of philosophy and in art, that there is something generative and creative that is at the heart of entropy that for stars to be formed, other stars have to collapse, right? Stars are formed by the, by the waste and breakdown and decay of other, other um, celestial phenomena. And so it, that's, it's very poetic sounding, but it's also true. And so once you start to see that actually entropy is necessary for life itself on the cosmic level and just on our sort of, you know, earth level, then you can start to, to see that entropy is actually a, a, a door that opens into other for, uh, into understanding and appreciating the creation and creative aspects of, of, of these things that these other thinkers and these other studies that I did in the book don't seem open to, right? They really ride that wave of destruction. But, you know, I, I talk about Smiths and I also talk about Nietzsche and Nietzsche talks about the joy and destruction. And I think there's a lot of joy and destruction in capitalism. But if you look at the joy and destruction from a more aesthetic perspective, then you actually appreciate the very materiality that goes into the creation of something new. 
And so it's not just a, I will mine the materials for my project. It's the appreciation that breakdown and decay actually give rise to something novel. And so I think that artists and philosophers like Nietzsche can really help us to see that in a way that's, that's actually illuminating. And that's kind of, that's the direction that I went there. And then the other element that, you know, the other, the other sort of kind of quieter sister discourse that's moving throughout this entire book is what I call intrepics. And that's a, that's a, that's a concept that comes from an analysis of the earliest forms of the appearance of entropia in ancient Greek, which we find in Homer and, um, and like Oedipus and colonists. And, and we see that there's actually these, you know, Sophocles, we see that there is this appearance of this term entropy that isn't, that, that actually means a, a turning toward or care or reverence and specifically a turning toward or care and reverence in the face of that which dies in the face of finitude and suffering. And so the, you know, they sort of appear in these moments where someone is suffering and someone else speaks of, of whether, you know, the proper care is being shown to this person or to this suffering. And the word is, a, is some form of, of entropia. And I, and so it's sort of like, wow, there's actually this kind of insight that this journey through this idea, through all of these, you know, ideas that we can see in entropics brought me to. And that is the insight that even in the face of these destructive forces of capitalism or the denial of death and decay or the leveling of cultural differences, if we take this kind of intrepid turn in entropic philosophy, we can see that these are actually sites needing care. And that instead of sort of saying, oh, well, look, the elderly are just going to get, for example, just going to get chewed up and spit out by capitalism. You better prepare better and you better save your retirements and make sure you've properly invested in the markets. Instead, we can see, no, actually, this is a system that is hemorrhaging energy that doesn't need to because there are en there's energy from other systems, probably monetary systems, among others, that could be diverted to that site of suffering. And so that, and I, and I say this, first of all, because again, I think it's just ethically right to do, but I also think that, that the study of entropy shows you nobody's going to benefit from allowing vulnerable populations simply to suffer and be chewed up by this accelerationist attitude of, you know, that, that, that we, that we've been talking about in, in tropics, no one benefits from that. Nobody lives a happier life. If rich people end up building bunkers because they know that the climate is destroyed, that's not a better life for them either. Nobody certain, right. Nobody, nobody is going to benefit from this kind of denial or acceleration. So instead, if we focus on these sites of breakdown and hurt and harm and see them as not that which needs to be rejected or ignored, but instead that which needs to be regarded and tended to, I think that actually works in this kind of scientific, but primarily sort of, well, scientific and metaphoric sense of entropy, which is we can steward all of the systems and the energy that we have available and the right the, the resources that we have available in the best possible way. And so instead of seeing the kind of, you know, fatalism that I worry when I see in my students, like, well, 
You know, how many more generations are going to make it through? Instead of thinking in that way, we think in terms of conservation and stewardship along those entropic lines. I think we could we could make this go for a good long time. We could do it. I know that might sound foolishly optimistic, but I think if we really understood it in terms of these kinds of borrowing systems, why not think of entropy more in the term of the big freeze or right in trillions of years in the future, all matter will cease to, to uh, combine into new forms. We can think more in those terms instead of a generation or two. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the book I gives this vision, this care, um, this intrepid um, version without being, um, without appearing like optimistic about it, right? Like it's still breakdown and decay and chaos. Um, but there's something, um, there's something uh, very relieving about that, the way the book does that. It, it There's like a pressure that comes off, which is um, this isn't personal failure. This isn't something that individuals can stop. The, there's no anti-entropy machine that's going to, but, and so it's, 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 fact right like it's happening um and but we can we can decide we can choose um enlivening ways of of turning towards that precisely that's that's it and i so i think that's that's it in a nutshell that we can acknowledge the reality we can be pragmatic about it and that will actually open us up to i think much better, more flourishing, more humane ways of organizing our practices. Yeah. Well, um, so now that you've written a book on entropy, what are you working on? <laughs> now that you've, you know, turned towards. Do I have to do anything? I feel like I just get to be in a puddle for, no. You do. Absolutely. I, um, I have a lot of, I, I really do have a lot of respect for just taking some time, but. Oh, it's just, it's just writing a book on entropy seems like such a self-defeating, such a self-defeating thing because it's just like, why would you do that? But actually what I, what I'm working on now is a continuation of the, of the analysis that I was doing with uh, the old age chapter. And that is, I'm really, I'm sort of focusing on these two different treatments that you get in Beauvoir and Bruder. So in Beauvoir, the problem with with the elderly is that, and again, I think it's really provocative because this is 50 years old, 50 years old, and it's 50 years ago in France, and so it's a very different kind of analysis. But what she's worried about is that in advanced um, industrial societies, that the old are just sort of cast off and they are impoverished and they're ignored and they live very lonely, sad lives. And that is definitely something that we experience in contemporary American society as well. But that I think that with the work that Bruder was is, is, was doing and still may be doing, what you see is actually it's not just this casting off and isolation and rejection of the elderly. It's a reincorporation of them. So I'm just sort of putting these two ideas together, whether, you know, what, what strategies, what these different strategies of looking at how we treat the elderly, either as that which should be discarded and ignored or that which should be reincorporated for profit and consumption and just sort of trying to, to see how to diagnose where we are right now. Yeah. This sort of, techniques of marginalization and exploitation yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. um well i i really look forward to reading that work <laughs> thank you yeah um well thank you so much for this conversation oh thank you how enjoyable i really appreciate it
Yeah, me too. 